Well, it's good to see you all this morning. I'm grateful for the opportunity to bring God's word to you. Um, I was grateful when I was asked. Um, for those of you who don't know me very well, my name's Jesse, and uh, I am a former pastor. I served two years uh, at a church in Arizona as the full-time uh, lead teaching and preaching pastor, and have come back to Michigan um, in the last, probably, let's see, December. So it's been seven, eight months now. Um, going back to school, I'm at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary going for a Master of Theology degree. Um, and again, I'm very grateful for this opportunity uh, to bring God's Word to you this morning. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 40, reading verses 28 to 31. We'll be looking at this passage this Lord's Day and then the next Lord's Day, so it'll be a two-part message, and it's entitled um, A Right View of God, and part two is A Right View of Ourselves. So Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 28. The prophet Isaiah writes, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Please join me as we go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it was penned so many years ago and it is still yet preserved and speaking to us today. We think of this book of Isaiah penned hundreds of years before the coming of Christ and yet we have it today and it is an inspired and fallible word that you are still pleased to use to speak to our hearts and encouraging and correcting us and guiding us as we walk as Christians in this world. We ask and pray this morning as we look at this text, a text that is perhaps familiar to many of us, that you would bring it to our hearts in a fresh way, that we would find encouragement in it and hope. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you that you have commanded us to come and assemble as we have, as your people, one in Christ together, to worship you, to sing songs and make melody in our hearts unto the Lord. Thank you that we have participated in that and that we have fellowshiped with one another and we are now participating together, even now, in worship, in prayer, and soon the preaching of your word. We pray that our hearts would readily receive this means of grace this morning and that it would fill us and exhort us and even correct us. We pray that it would be balm to hearts. We pray that your word would fill us with your spirit, fill us with godly-mindedness and a right view of the world around us in which we live. We pray your blessing upon this time, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure we've all heard the phrase and are familiar with this idea of don't judge a book by its cover. And yet, as familiar as that phrase is to us, we perhaps can think of instances where we have wrongly judged something. Our first impression wasn't true. Our initial reaction was not what was necessarily right about whatever it was. Perhaps it was a person. We had an initial impression, and as we got to know them better, we found out, no, they're not the kind of person I, I thought they were. Or perhaps a book, reading the, the back of it, or maybe uh, the first couple pages, and it didn't really grip you, it didn't really excite you, and yet you, you've committed, and you're reading, and you're, you're getting into the book, and suddenly you find yourself enjoying it, and it becomes a read that you can't put down. Or even a movie, I'm sure all of us can think of ways, instances in which we've wrongly judged something and realized that it was actually the opposite or different. 
a faulty perception. And yet, as common as that phrase is and as often as we do it, we don't necessarily learn and grow from what we know and what we've experienced in the wrong uh, judging of something. We do it all the time. In fact, we do it in our walk with the Lord. We make wrong judgments and perceptions of things. And, and in our text this morning, we have before us a picture of God, of who he is, and a display of who man is. And our struggle, our problem as human beings is we struggle to have a right judgment impression of who God is and of who we really are. We may intellectually know what is true about God and what is true about ourselves, but we find ourselves over and over and over again believing things about God that are not true or judging of him in a situation wrongly, contrary to his revealed word and his revealed character. And we need such a reminder as this to believe what God has said about himself, believe and trust what God has said about ourselves, and then we need to know how to live in light of those two important truths. It's really a right perspective on the world, a right judgment of what is true and real. It's a right judgment that is in agreement with what God says about things. It's really thinking his thoughts after him, making a judgment and perceiving the world as he does. And so this morning, beginning today and then continuing next Lord's Day, we'll be looking at three points, three points. The first is what we see about the character of God in this text, really what God has revealed about himself. And then secondly, we'll see this important creator-creature distinction that it's in light of the character of God that is revealed here and all throughout Scripture that we begin to get a really good picture of who God is and who we are in light of how we are not like him. And then in light of that, kind of the, the really the application, how do we live in light of who God is and who we are and we're not him and he's not us, we need to live, thirdly, in dependence upon God and really the dependency of all creatures, all created things upon God, their creator. So first, we, needed, we need to be reminded of the character of God. We need to have that deeper and more richly impressed upon our hearts because there's, there's no knowledge greater in all the world than knowing God, knowing more of him, probing deeper and deeper into this God who is the God of all things the creator, the Lord. There's no greater knowledge. There's no greater pursuit. And perhaps we, we know much of God, but we need to go deeper. And the things that we know, we need to be reminded of them. Lest we forget, we find ourselves in a circumstance where we begin choosing to believe what is not true about God. In our text, the prophet Isaiah begins with this this question, and it's not the first time he's asked this question, do you not know, have you not heard? He's basically repeating the same idea of what he said back in verse 21. And he's, he's asking these questions uh, to his audience, and we'll talk about his audience in a moment, and he's asking them about things that surely they should know. Do you not know? Have you not heard? How, how could you live in this world and these realities not be apparent to you? That's the gist of what he's saying. And, and the prophet Isaiah is speaking to a people who previously in, in the book of Isaiah have been receiving a lot of judgment, a lot of warnings. Isaiah has come and is prophesying to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom has been obliterated and destroyed beforehand by the Assyrians because of their wickedness and their idolatry. And God has sent many prophets to them before their destruction, but he's also sent prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah, warning them, calling them to repentance. And the prophet Isaiah is one of those prophets. The, really the first uh, half of this book is, a, is an unpacking of prophecies against the nation and against nations around them. And then when we get to uh, the chapters immediately before the one that we are in this morning, you can see it 
switches from prophecy to a narrative, and it deals with the events surrounding King Hezekiah and the approaching armies that God provides a miraculous victory for. And then in chapter 40, it suddenly switches the direction that it's going from narrative back to prophecy, but now the prophecy is not uh, doom and gloom and judgment and warning. It's a message of hope and comfort. And the very first words in this 40th chapter really summarize all that is coming thereafter in the book. The prophet Isaiah says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hands double for all of her sins. What a change of tone. And what is beginning is the prophet is now revealing the coming glory of Christ. And again and again in these chapters that follow, there's revelation of the one that's to come, the servant of the Lord, the servant's songs in Isaiah. And of course, Isaiah 53, the promises of what Christ would do and what he would suffer. And this, this whole latter portion of Isaiah is really one of the sweetest parts, the most comforting and hope-filled parts of the Old Testament. And this morning we find ourselves at the very beginning of that, the very beginning of in the midst of all the warning and what is coming upon the nation, hope. A hope that they were anticipating, that they were looking towards, but a hope for us that we have seen become a reality. We can look back upon not just the prophecy, but the fulfillment that God truly did provide comfort and hope to his people in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of this encouragement and the bringing of hope, the prophet asks this question to the people. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Again, surely these, these people would be aware of these things. And the, the things that follow are revelation of the character of God. And what the prophet is saying, you know these things. You're aware of these things. You surely know that God is everlasting, that he's the Lord, that he's the creator of all the ends of the earth, and he's omniscient and omnipotent and all of these wonderful attributes. But he says, you know these things. How could you not? You live in this world. It really begs the question, how could they know these things about God? How could they have an awareness of the fact that these things are true of God? Well, first, they're living in a world where natural revelation is speaking to them. It's like a giant billboard testifying to the creator who made all that is visible. And Romans 1 tells us that even that is enough to bring people to a knowledge of God. It's evident around every human being that there is a God and that there are things that are true of him that can be observed in the world around us. And so the, these people in this day and time living in the world that we live in, it's a different place, it's a different time. They were over in the Middle East and we we're over here in the United States, but yet we are living in the same world and we cannot be ignorant of these truths about God. Nature reveals many of them. But it was not just natural revelation that brought the knowledge of these things to the people that Isaiah was speaking to. Of course, special revelation, a greater revelation, had come to them. They had a Bible that was what we call today the Old Testament. They had the Pentateuch. They had many of the historical narratives. And, and God was sending to them prophets who were speaking forth the word of God, and many of those things were being written down and could be read. And all of that revelation was God's intentional revealing of himself to men in a special and particular way. And it's with that, that natural revelation married to the, the greater special revelation that brings a greater, clearer knowledge of God. And surely, the Jews, having not just natural revelation, but clear, easy access to the Old Testament scriptures in their language, 
which was not true of any of the other peoples of the earth. Surely they have a greater opportunity and a greater knowledge of these things than the nations. And of course, the prophet would say, do you not know? How could you not know? Have you not heard? And then he recounts not all, but some of the important attributes of God that distinguish him from us as human beings. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. The first attribute that's given there is that God is everlasting. He is eternal. And that word eternal is implying timelessness. The idea is that and it's really hard for us to think this way because we, we have only experienced the reality of time. Eternity is something for God that is completely outside of time. He existed before time began. He doesn't have a beginning point. There was no moment in which he was not and then originated and became who he was and now is. He's always been. And he's eternal in, in the sense of as far back as you can go, he, he was, and as far in the the future as we can go, he is, he, he is, and, and we see that reflected in one of that great names that God reveals in the Old Testament to his people. I am. It's a, a declaration of present existence, speaking to his eternality. The Puritan, Matthew Henry, writes here, speaking of God, he was from eternity. He will be to eternity, and therefore with him there is no deficiency no decay. He has his being of himself, and therefore all of his perfections must needs be boundless. He is without beginning of days or end of life. Therefore with him there is no change. There's many different ideas that Matthew Henry is speaking of there that can be reflected in this everlasting or eternal attribute of God. He has no beginning, no ending, and because of that there is no deficiency in him. He's lacking nothing. We'll talk more about that. There's no decay. There's no unbecoming of God. He is his being of himself. He's self-existent. The, the word that theologians use to describe this is aseity. But God exists and depends on nothing and no one else to have his existence. And only he can say that and, and it be true of himself because he existed before anything was. Therefore, there could not be anything upon which he could depend for his existence. He is eternal. No change, no decay. What a picture that is alongside the idols that men make. The idols that men make, they have a point in which they were not, and then the point in which they become in, in the old days, they were fashioned out of wood and stone and, and all of those things, and, and they were made to be what they are, but they, they decay, don't they not? Archaeologists find these things all the time, and they're, they're digging, and they're, they're not pristine and perfect like they were just freshly made. They're scarred, broken. They're worn out. And that is true of every idol, of every lowercase g, God, that we as human beings can make and fashion. In comparison with God who was not made or fashioned, who actually made and fashioned all things, God is truly the only one in which you can say he is, he was, and he will always be. He's eternal. He also reveals himself here to be the Lord. The Lord. Many of your Bible translations will have that word LORD in all capital letters. And that's reflective of a particular word in the Old Testament Hebrew language. It's not the only word for LORD. You'll see another word, Adonai. Often that's, that's translated with a capital L and lowercase o-r-d. But here it's all capital letters because it is the word Yahweh or Jehovah. Yahweh being that name that God revealed of himself, meaning I am. 
again, reflective of his eternality and of his existence and self-sufficiency. It speaks of the personhood of God. He is a person. He is a being. He has existence. He has substance. He's divine. He's Lord of all things. And that meaning of Lord and, and how we relate to it really comes into focus when we see what comes next. The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Surely the one who has made all things has a right to be Lord of it all. If, if he not just owns it all, but made it all, it's his. That includes everything that we see around us. Even the things that man has taken and fashioned into what we see around us. It was made by God. It's God's. He's Lord of it all. He is the shaper, the maker of all things. He is the one who literally, to the ends of the earth, that's an expression speaking of the entirety of creation, not just what's on this planet, but as far as you can go in one direction in our universe, and as far as you can go in the other direction, it's all God's. He made it all. He shaped, he fashioned it. Charles Simeon writes, there's nothing in the whole universe which did not derive its existence from his all-creating hand, nor is anything left to its own operations without his sovereign control. Not only is he creator, but you see the, the idea of sovereignty over it through his lordship and his ownership. He's the maker and the shaper of us. He, he was the maker and shaper of all things not like us. And I mean that in the sense of not just everything else, but he makes things differently than we do. We create things, we fashion, we shape things, but we take what is and make it into something else. That's not what God did. The creation, he merely spoke. And what happened was there wasn't nothing, and suddenly there was something. Human beings can't speak matter and atoms and molecules into existence, but God can and did. Every atom that exists was called forth by the mouth of God. There's no rogue atom in the universe because it's his. And that tells us something about how we ought to live our lives. Every atom and molecule that makes up our bodies was made by him, was fashioned and put together in the way that makes us appear as, as we are by him. In fact, he owns it all. It's his by possession, by virtue of creator and lordship. How ought we to live in light of that? If he is the eternal one, the Lord, the owner, the creator, the Lord of it all, our use of those things is just merely a stewardship of what's still his. The most valuable possessions that we have, down to the most unvaluable or invaluable, they're still his. And our using and making use of them and our stewardship of them is still using what is God's? How ought we to steward what's his? How ought we to care for it and to discharge it? It calls for a, a, more, a little bit more carefulness, does it not? Acting more in, in line with, is this stewardship of what I'm doing with this thing pleasing to God? Is it an act of worship? Or is it just merely self-seeking? There's nothing wrong with making use of what is to satisfy ourselves, but it can't just be that. We are called to worship God even in the menial things, the eating and the drinking. Do it as unto him. So he's the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. And our text says, and he does not become weary we're tired. Well, there's a big distinction between creatures and creator. Has anyone here never been tired or weary? No. Never. We're perpetually getting tired and weary and wearing out, which is why we have to 
sleep every night. We have to rest and allow our bodies to recover and recharge for the day that's coming. Our strength, our power fades quickly. That's not so with God. God's storehouses of power and might and strength are infinite. When he created the world, there was no greater going forth of his might and strength. And yet, if you were to compare the capacity that was located in his storehouses before the act of creating and then after, you'd find no change because it did not impoverish him whatsoever. He has infinite power. You can't break a finite piece off of infinite and and still have something that takes away from that which was infinite. One commentator speaks to the importance of God's not getting tired, not getting weary. He writes, if God were for a moment to faint or be weary, to slumber or sleep, the whole fabric of nature would fail and disappear, and universal chaos would set in. All moral order would cease. Probably all existence would sink into nothingness. God is wholly free from whatsoever is weak or defective. Aren't you glad that we have a God whose energy and ability and power and might and strength, the sustaining of it all and upholding of it all, he he never gets tired. It's a perfect upholding. It's a perfect sustaining, constantly, perpetually, without waxing and waning in his strength and his power. We live in a world that is ordered, right? Sun comes up every day, it goes down, the planets are moving, gravity is operating, and all of the the other things that he's made, it's like this giant clock that's working and functioning. And it is that way because God is all-powerful and never gets weary or tired. Exercising in his sovereignty and his power all that is necessary to keep the world as we know it operating, even down to holding the smallest atoms and molecules together so that what is stays as it is. What a wonderful world we live in, is it not? That God has given us, that he orders and controls. We would be thankful and more thankful because of the world in which we live in and because it is a reflection of a God who is ordered and powerful and mighty in his sustaining Activity. It's a wonderful display of his character and his nature. So he does not become weary or tired, but we do. And the prophet will go on in the verses that follow to really highlight this difference between creator and creature and show in and through it all that it shapes how we are to live in this world. A world that is all his, all under his control, we living and using what's his and constantly deteriorating and getting tired and weary. How are we to live? Well, the answer is independence upon him. So he is the immutable, independent, self-sufficient, eternal, all-powerful creator God. But the text also says he's, in addition to those things, omniscient. His understanding, the prophet says, is inscrutable. Now there's a fancy word that we don't use very often. Inscrutable. It just rolls off your your tongue. But what does that word mean? What does that tell us about God? Now this word inscrutable in, in the Greek can be translated a couple different ways that may help us to grab a hold of it a little bit better. It can also mean unfathomable or unsearchable. Now, the word unfathomable is really helpful. Um, It's pointing to a measurement, a fathom, which is about six feet, and fathoms are used to measure depth, particularly in oceans and, and lakes and seas and that sort of thing. And in the old days, When ships would be sailing, they would put down uh, a way in which they would measure how many fathoms were under the boat, knowing how deep the water needed to be so they wouldn't run aground. 
And it was very important, especially in places where the, the depth of the water was not as deep as the, the ocean, uh, to take a measurement, to make sure that they had enough clearance under their keel. And that word fathom, here as it's used of God, tells us something profound about who God is. Whereas we are able to fathom out the depths underneath us, if we were to say the deep is like unto the knowledge of God, it is unfathomable. In other words, there isn't a rope long enough to get to the bottom in the knowledge of God's wisdom, his knowledge, to see how vast it is. Just as there's no way that we can feasibly measure across our universe, we use this big long tool called a light year, and that's a very vast distance in space. It's basically how long it takes for light to go from one point to another point in a year. And light travels very, very, very fast. It's faster than sound. And yet, we, we can barely measure our way across our own solar system and then from our own galaxy to the next galaxy. The universe is so vast. We can't fathom even what all is out there beyond what our telescopes are even able to reach and see. And as much as we don't see, we know there's much out there. And the same is true of God. His knowledge, his wisdom is like unto the universe around us, the depth in the sea, except we can't find the bottom. We can't find the end, the beginning of it. The commentator Albert Barnes writes here that the God who made all things must be infinitely wise. There is proof of boundless skill in the works of his hands, and it's impossible for a finite mind to fully and adequately search out all the boundless deep of his wisdom and skill. Man can only see a small part, while the vast ocean, the boundless deep of his wisdom, lies still unexplored. Have you ever seen a, an iceberg? I have. I lived in Alaska, and um, where I, where I lived, I didn't get to see them regularly, but I went out on a cruise and you could see them floating in the water. And the ones that you see in the water, you know, they can be various sizes, but sometimes they can be very large. But it's important to know, especially you know, if you're um, wanting to climb on them or to sail around them, that what you see above water is only a very small percentage of the whole. In fact, the majority of the mass is underwater. But above the water, we only perceive a small percentage of what's truly there. And that, in a sense, is true of the knowledge and wisdom of God. He has revealed to us his wisdom and his knowledge and his word. But that's not all the wisdom and knowledge that is God's. It's like that iceberg that the, the greater mass is still underneath the waves. Except with him, it's an infinite iceberg. Huge. Vast. God's wisdom is immense. Perfect. Exhaustive. As human beings, our minds can't even hold half of what we ought to know and remember. And we can't even create a computer that's able to hold in its memory, all of the knowledge and wisdom that man knows and has access to. And yet that's a drop in a bucket. There's so much we don't understand in our world. We don't even really understand how light works. You know, we're still in this like wave theory, uh, wave particle theory. It, it, it acts like a wave. Sometimes it acts like a particle. We don't know what, how it functions really. We, we don't even really know in so many ways what's happening as light comes forth from something. And, and that's just a part for the whole of there's so much in our world we don't understand we don't know and yet God who is the creator of it all knows it all perfectly and he knows far more than just the things that are present in this world but we we must recognize that our ability to understand God and God's wisdom is small in comparison to the greatness of what is his. This 
has led many to question, well, then is God actually knowable? Can you actually know a God whom you can only know a piece of? Or can you actually even know that little bit of God? There are philosophers that created this, this kind of illustration for the world in which we live and ask those questions about can we know God? And really the illustration they give is human beings live in a world alongside this big wall. On the other side of the wall is God. And we can't get over the wall. We can't see through the wall. We can't get around the wall. We can't get under the wall to see who God is. And those um, philosophers who questioned the veracity of Scripture and doubted its divine authorship reached the point where, well, if we can't depend upon this, then we cannot know God. But as Christians who believe that the word of God is inspired and inerrant, authoritative, and is still God's revelation speaking to us, we can look at that illustration and see the futility of what many try to propose, a God who you can't know him because you can't trust what supposedly he has given us and his self-revelation, we, we look at that and we say, no, God has revealed himself. We have his word, but we have something even more important than that. We have one who came from the other side, who was God himself, who came to our side and put on flesh and became one of us. Surely one who came forth from God to us can make him known to us. And so the question, can we know God? Yes, because he's revealed himself in his word and has revealed himself in the word, Christ. The Apostle John in John 1.18 writes, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And he has done that through his Son. Now, Boiling this down to this important idea of can we know God? Yes, but not all. We know some. And theologians use these, these two helpful words to help us to more rightly reflect the knowledge that we can have of God. And it's the idea of we are not able to comprehend because the idea of comprehend means like you can fully wrap your hands around it. You have a full um, well-orbed understanding of whatever that is and of God we cannot say that we know, we know him but we know a finite amount of an infinite God and instead of using that comprehend theologians often use the word apprehend we are able to apprehend him we are able to know something of him but recognizing that we don't know much and you see that's what eternity is going to be we will still be finite beings in that age to come and we will still be chasing down the knowledge of the infinite God if we are in Christ. And so what a, what a privilege is ours now in this present age to have his word, to open it and that God speaks to us through his word revealing himself to us that we might understand who he is but also recognizing that as much as we continue to know and the deeper we go and the broader and the richer our knowledge of him is, the more we ought to realize how much we actually don't know. Which leads us not to intellectual pride and superiority, but to humility. All true knowledge of God should humble you. Not just because of the vastness of what you don't know, but because of who you are in light of who he is. And that leads us to our second point. The creator-creature distinction. God is eternal in his exi existence, right? He exists outside of time and space, and he still exists outside of time and space now. He doesn't have mass to him. He's a spirit. That's why scripture speaks of, of God um, as to the time factor, like a day is like a thousand years to him. It, it's a metaphor speaking of time is not a thing that God operates in in and of himself he enters into time and works but in him in himself there is no such thing as time he's eternal but we live in time our world functions upon the 24 hours that comprise a day 
We live in time. We live in space. We are creatures that are tangible and, and fleshly. But those things are not true of God. God is not fleshly. He, he doesn't have mass. He doesn't have a beginning like we do. He doesn't have an ending like we will in our death. Not just that, but following on past eternal, we're not the Lord, right? We, we, we don't have ownership of things in this world. We have a stewardship, right? What we have is not really, truly, in the, in the strictest sense of the word, ours, exclusively. It's God's. So we're not the Lord, but yet there are many people in this world who live as if they are the Lord of their lives and of their possessions, doing whatever seems right according to their own mind and heart, being unto themselves God. And yet, God has revealed that he alone has the right to say what is right and what is wrong. He alone has the ability to accomplish what is pleasing to him. And, and really and truly, God alone has the ability to ordain and accomplish and work. We, in our creatureliness, bound up by limitations in some ways, when we compare ourselves to God, seeing this eternal, all-powerful, ever-working, never-tiring one, and we, we look at ourselves and we're honest with ourselves and we see like we don't create like he creates. We're not immutable like he is immutable. We're mutable. We're changing. We're breaking down. We're getting older. We forget things. God doesn't forget things. We struggle to remember things, to know things, and he doesn't. We could go on and on and on and talk about these, this comparison between who God is and who we are as men. So much of who God is is reflected in us in a way we are made in his image. But we're not God. We're not infinite. Our wisdom and understanding are not unsearchable and unfathomable. Our wisdom is often lacking, is it not? But yet, how many people in this world live as if they're all wise? How many people in this world live as if they are the Lord of their life, thinking that they can control and ordain and accomplish and work, giving little question to the God who's the Lord of it all? Do we live that way? Do we live our lives as if we were the God of our life, the Lord of our possessions, all-knowing, all-wise. You see, the reason why God reveals himself in these ways is to show us not just who he is, but to also shine the light on who we are in light of who he is. Really to show us who we are not, what we are not. Because God has made us not to be for ourselves, but for himself. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, the prophet Isaiah, in speaking of God, writes, For my thoughts, the thoughts of God, are not your thoughts, speaking to men, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts reflection of the wisdom of God who ordains and purposes from all of eternity what will happen in this world. His thoughts, his ways. And the prophet speaks here of the fact that God's thoughts and God's ways are not the way that we think. They're not our ways. God's wisdom is better. It's perfect. And in our lives as we live and as we operate, we, we need to live recognizing the fact that the way that we think is not like God thinks. It's not in every way a reflection of God's ways because we sin, do we not? We fail. We struggle. 
Those things are never true of God. He never errs. He's always right. What he does is always perfect. It's always good. It's always righteous. But that's not true of us. And yet, as believers, do we not find ourselves at places where it's really hard to understand why God is doing what he's doing, what he's doing, and we wrestle with it and we don't understand and are tempted to think we know better than God. Albert Barnes writes here, the reasons of his doings are often hid from his people and their consolation is to be found in the assurance that he is infinitely wise and that he who rules over the universe must know what is best and cannot err. What a profound thing this is. God being all wise means that whatever he does in our lives is right and good. And as those of us who are in Christ encounter situations in our lives where we find ourselves wrestling with and struggling with what God has done and is doing. We know that God works all things together for our good, but it is a reflection of his ways, his thoughts being higher, better than ours. So, so often we think of just the momentary temporal situation, and yet God's view is so much greater, eternal. May this attribute of God, the all-knowing, the infinite, unfathomable wisdom of God, be a comfort to our hearts in times and seasons when we find ourselves struggling to understand what God is doing and finding ourselves tempted to think that what God is doing is not the right thing. It's not the right thing. It's the wrong time for that. It, it shouldn't be happening this way. And yet, May this truth of, of who God is encourage our hearts away from a sinful response, thinking that we know better than God, that we can do better than God. May that guide us towards a, a willingness to humble ourselves and recognize that what God is doing is higher and greater and better than what we could even imagine. And that though in the present, what God is doing may seem mysterious, strange, even unwanted. You can trust him. Do you trust him? Do you trust him no matter what your situation is, no matter what you may be feeling about a situation, do you trust him? We, we must move from believing and understanding these, these things that are true of God and apply them to our lives and trust our hearts, and what we know to be true. May God help us. May God grow our faith because we cannot just simply trust God more. We can't simply just rest in him more in our own power and strength. We need his help. We need his work. And so this morning, if you are finding yourself struggling to trust God, perhaps even living thinking in places in your life that you are God. You are Lord of your possessions. You are living as if you were God. And you're feeling convicted over what this passage teaches about who God is in light of who we really are. May you go to the Lord and confess those ways in which you are sinfully living in God's world, sinfully using what God has created and given. May you confess those things to him. Repent of them and ask him to change your heart, to change how you live. That you would live in this world in such a way that you, you see who God is and you live in light of that knowledge and see who you really are and recognize how much you are not God and how good it is to stop being and acting like you are God, thinking you could do better, that you know better. And said, trust him. It's hard to trust God sometimes. It's hard in those moments when our, what we know to be true in our minds and what we're seeing in our lives 
and experiencing seem to be complete contradictions, opposites to each other. Yet we must trust that the Lord knows what he is doing. Because again, there's not one situation, not one rogue Adam in this universe that's operating outside of what he has ordained. And if we're in Christ, we know that it is all being worked together for our good. Even the hard, even the painful, even the sorrowful things. God is using them for one end, fitting us for heaven. May we live in, in this world seeking and pursuing an even truer and richer, deeper knowledge of God. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life that they, and this is Christ speaking, that they may know you, the only true God. That is eternal life, knowing God. And we can know him right now through his word, through what has been revealed through his son in his word. May we desire to know God. May we not just be satisfied with what we already know. May we go deeper. May we not just know what we know, but may we apply what we know. May we live out the implications of what we know to be true. And that really leads us to our third point, which I will just briefly introduce before we conclude. How do we live in light of God being eternal, the Lord of all things, the creator, infinite in knowledge, infinite in power, and we are none of those things? Well, the way that we live in this world is by depending upon the one who made, sustains, gives, controls, and knows all things. Is there anyone better in all the world to depend upon than him? For you can't provide endless resources of strength to yourself. Money. You don't know everything. You don't know all of the, the possible ways in which a decision could go one way or another. God knows. Instead of depending upon ourselves and living lives that are self-sufficient, may we instead live lives that are dependent upon God because that's how God created us to live and operate. He created us not for ourselves but for him. And that's a picture of what we find in the gospel, is it not? We're all born into this world sinners. And we sin because we are sinful by nature. And the longer we live, depending upon ourselves, the farther and farther we get down the pathway of sin and the higher the mountain of our sin gets. And yet, in the gospel, we have this call to stop depending upon yourself, but to depend upon him, the one who out of the infinite supply of his riches and wisdom provided a way so that we would live how we were created to live for him and it's through his son Jesus Christ you see we cannot live in such a way that can be good enough for God good enough to please God God asks of us perfect obedience perfection which we cannot do right we're born as sinners and we sin all throughout our lives. And yet there are so many people that live in this world that think that they can depend upon themselves and their own righteousness to be good enough before God. There's a lot of people that go to churches that live that way. Perhaps there's someone here today who you are living your life focusing on the doing, thinking that that will please God whether it's in your walk with the Lord as a believer or whether it's trying to be good enough so that God will accept you and save you. The gospel tells us that we cannot do. We cannot be self-dependent. We must be dependent upon Christ. This morning, if you are living and walking in your sins and you are trying to do enough to replace the bad that you have done or to even just be right with God, stop. You will never get there. You are not enough. 
but Christ is. For Christ entered into this world and did all that was required, all that was necessary, doing all that you and I cannot do. And then he went to the cross and died for sinners, laying down his life and suffering the wrath of God, the consequences due sin. If you, where you are at, you don't have to clean up your life, just simply come to him and confess your sins and cling to Christ and believe that he died to save you. And if you believe upon him, you will be saved and you will be saved today. And you will find yourself leaning on, depending upon a savior who is eternal, who is the Lord, who is all-powerful, whose righteousness that you will bear will never wane, never go away. The one who is infinitely powerful, who is able through his spirit to pour into your life the strength that you need to do what you need to do every day, your responsibilities and what is pleasing to him. As believers, it's very tempting to live our lives self-sufficiently, focusing on doing and not finding in the Lord what we need in order to do what we need to do. We are not enough in and of ourselves. We need the Lord's help. We need the Lord's strength. We need the Lord's wisdom. And he's given us his word to be a means by which that help, that strength, that wisdom is poured into us by the Spirit of God. So I ask you, as a believer, how are you living your life? Are you living depending upon yourself, or are you living depending upon Christ every single day? Living by grace, leaning still every day upon the one, the only one, who has saved your soul. The only one who is able to give you the strength and the power to do this day what you must do and what is pleasing to him. His resources are inexhaustible and he is pleased to infuse his people with the grace and the strength that is power and power to do what we need to do to be faithful in stewarding what God has given to us because he will not ask us and call us to do what he will not also equip us to do, but we must depend upon him for that and not ourselves. And so in conclusion this morning, we have seen what scripture says here about who God is. And in light of that, we have seen ourselves. And the question is, how are you going to live in light of what you know to be true? Are you going to live resting in the Lord, depending upon him, and finding there, no matter where you are in life, an oasis in the desert? Or are you going to live depending upon yourself, self-sufficiency, living apart from all that God is pleased to pour into your life? Help, strength, like the choice between choosing to constantly live in an oasis that follows you wherever you go depending upon the Lord or choosing to venture off into the desert and you don't know where the next water is because you've left it behind what will you choose by God's grace as his people we need the Lord's help every day to depend upon him may the Lord help us we are not enough ourselves to do or even to choose what is right. May God help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, may you continue to open our eyes to see how very weak we are, how very frail, how very unable, and how very much we need your help. For you are God, you are Lord, you are the one who sustains all that you have created. And you were able to sustain us when we are weak. You were able to encourage us when we are discouraged. You were able to strengthen us 
to do what seems insurmountable and impossible. You are able to give us what we need when we're weary and struggling to be faithful. We pray that we would lean upon you and your son and drink deeply of the riches of the well that is found there and find help. We pray that you would work this in our hearts because we need your, your, your help. We need your grace. Thank you that you are who you are and that you have made us for yourself through your son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.